This morning, Psalm 22, before we read the psalm, it'd be wise to heed the advice of Spurgeon, who said of Psalm 22, whenever you read it, you should read it reverently, taking your shoes off of your feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in scripture, it is this psalm. You don't need to actually take your shoes off. But as I read it for us, I'm, we're only going to read up to verse 21 today, and we'll continue the next half of it next Sunday. I trust that you won't cheat during the week and read ahead. Let me read it for you. But as you listen, listen through the ears of Spurgeon, who declares this to be the holy ground in Scripture. It's to the choir master. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. To the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by nights, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Psalm 22 is indelibly marked on the mind of every Christian because it was quoted extensively by our Lord and Savior in his final hours on earth as he hung dying on the cross. It was fulfilled by him in ways too numerous to even mention or catalog this morning. It is a majestic psalm, heavy and holy. It's a rhythmic psalm, and I hope you picked up on that as I was reading it. It moves freely between darkness and light, between despair and hope, between trouble and trust between agony and ecstasy, between death and life. These two polar opposites, the psalmist swings back and forth between them and tying them all together is this poetic design. I mean, this is an intricately 
designed psalm. As you read this, you are vividly confronted with the stark reality that the Savior, David's son and David's Lord, would be murdered in a horrific fashion. As far as a window into the soul of the Savior goes, there is no other passage like this in Scripture. It's a photograph of our Lord's saddest hours. It's the record of his dying words. It traces his final tears, and it serves as a memorial for his expiring joys. If you didn't know about the crucifixion, you learn about it here, and you learn more than simply about the nails, although they pierce the reader's heart. And Psalm moves beyond the physical nature of the crucifixion and into the point about the Savior's sinlessness. And I hope you realize that's the main point of this psalm. It's highlighting for you that though he was abandoned by God, though he was murdered by his leaders, though he was alienated even by his his friends, he was there by himself except for his enemies, although he suffered every indignity imaginable, and though all of this was unfair and unjust, did you notice in this that he never becomes angry at the Lord. He never ceases trusting God. Although he was horribly betrayed, unspeakably abandoned and murdered, he remains humble and holy. There's no plea for vengeance in this psalm. Unlike so many of the other imprecatory psalms, unlike when David is often cornered and he, and he prays for God to deliver him from his enemies by striking them down, there is none of that here. Not once does he ask the Lord to avenge his innocent death. Not once. Not once does he follow Job's lead in questioning the goodness of God and questioning the fairness of God. That's not on the Savior's lips. Instead, all you see is holiness abandoned and yet remains holy. This psalm may have been penned by David, but I mean, this is not Davidic. There is nothing in here that even comes close to the universe of things David experienced. Nothing in David's life comes close to this. This is Trinitarian self-reflection. And I want to say that phrase again because I hope you see that through Psalm 22. This is Trinitarian self-reflection. What you get here is a window into the way the Trinity functions, the way the Trinity operates. What you see here is how the Father and the Son relate to one another. And what you see here is how the Son, as a human, has a second nature. Here's your crash course Trinitarian lesson here. God is one being, one set of attributes, one nature, one will, one essence is what the creed says, or or one substance, that God has a being that is unique and unified, not divided. And yet that being exists in three persons. Now, a person is not a being. A person is a, an expression of a being. That's confusing for us because we're a one-to-one ratio here between your person and your being, one-to-one. <laughs> but God is one being, one set of 
attributes, one nature, one will, three persons. All three persons share in the same attributes. All three persons are the same being. All three persons share in the same nature. And yet, when the second person of the Trinity, when the Son of God becomes a man, he takes on a second nature. And so there in this human body are two natures, the nature of God, the, the, the very being of God, and the nature of man together in this one person. And this person is going to be abandoned by the Father. It's not enough to say that it's just a, a human who is holy who's abandoned by God. What you see here is the very being of God in a human body with a human nature abandoned by his heavenly Father. This is the question that everybody asks in this psalm, isn't it? How can God, if Jesus is God, how can God abandon God? I mean, every four-year-old asks that question. I know because I have a few of them. This is the, the basic Christian question. Once you first start to learn about the Trinity, this is where your mind goes, is to Jesus on the cross, abandoned by the Father. And this comes from Psalm 22. That's why as we walk through the psalm this morning, you're gonna get a window into not just what Jesus experienced physically, but the mental and spiritual anguish that comes from the very fabric of his being being torn. This is truly a song of desolation. Not a song of desolation like the other psalms of desolation about a king who loses or a country that falls. This is an entirely different category or quality of desolation. This psalm, of course, as I mentioned, has a structure. And the structure is designed to highlight this. The stanzas alternate, and perhaps you picked up on that, but let me highlight it for you. Verses one and two, uh, and then again, verses six through eight, and then they alternate through the rest of the psalm, 12 through, through 18, are all about the person, the sufferer. The key words in those stanzas are I, me, and mine. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry, I do not find rest. Verse six, I am a worm and not a man. All those who see me mock me, they make mouths at me. Again, verse 12, many bulls encompass me. And this goes on through, I'm not gonna go through the whole psalm again, but this goes on through the whole psalm. These stanzas, it's all about I and me. The focus is on the sufferer. But then in the alternating stanzas, the camera moves, so to speak, and now you're seeing the focus on the holy God. The key words in these stanzas, verse three through nine, nine through 11, 19 through 21, is you. You, it says in verse three, are holy. You are enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. In you they trusted. Again in verse nine, yet you did this. Verse 10, you did this. Verse 11, speaking to you, don't be far from me. I mean, this is the alternating pattern of this psalm, that the more he suffers, the more he is transfixed on the holiness of God. And of course, everything changes in verse 21, but we will save that for next week. Let's work through this psalm together as it alternates between complaint and confidence, anguish and intercession. Let's begin with verses one through five, forsaken by God. The psalmist begins decrying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the most poignant and pointed line in the whole psalm. It's the first. The psalm opens with desolation and fear. 
It's the dereliction of God's own son. Nothing like this has ever happened before. There's no other word spoken like this from this kind of person ever. This is so different than the normal Christian experience. It should stand out to you. You you would expect a non-believer on their deathbed to lack hope. Chaplains in the military or with law enforcement agencies or doctors and nurses have perhaps experienced this multiple times. Somebody who does not know the Lord is on their deathbed. They don't have confidence in the next life. They don't know what awaits them. Their conscience convicts them. They're they're plagued with, with doubts. They're often alone. You would expect moments of despair. You would expect them to be confused and to have no hope. What a contrast with Christians, a person who's led a a life of faith on his deathbed. Something I have had the privilege of witnessing several times is a very different experience than the non-believer. The Christian on his deathbed normally departs this world surrounded by friends and family, often singing hymns to him as he closes his eyes, Sometimes praying in moments of lucidity, sometimes having confidence, sometimes eager expectation about the next life. This is not a 100% guarantee, but that's the typical way Christians leave this world. And yet here, you see the sinless savior, Christ on the cross, and his last words are not surrounded by friends. There are no hymns sung in the background. They're not words of of confidence and rejoicing at a life well lived. His last words are, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out to God. He has no one answering his phone. Despite his lifetime of faithfulness, he is crying out and there is no one listening. This sounds like the atheist. There's no salvation close by, he says in the middle of verse one. God is so far from saving him. As I mentioned, this is not the typical experience, even in the Psalms. Psalm nine, Psalm 10, both describe someone in desperation calling on the Lord. And in both Psalms, it says, God does not neglect those who seek him. And yet here in Psalm 22, God neglects the ultimate seeker. In Psalm 20, verse one, just two Psalms earlier, it says Yahweh will answer you in the day of trouble. But here is the day of trouble, two chapters later, and there's no answer to be found. God hears the prayers of the brokenhearted, the scripture says, and here is the brokenhearted, and God has deaf ears. And it's not because of a lack of volume. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my my groaning? I cry, that word for groaning there, it's the, the word for, for a lion's roar. It's not that this savior is suffering on the cross timid and whispering. He describes his cry to God as the roar of a lion. And yet there are no ears for, on whom it can fall. The God who spoke the world into existence responds to the cry from his word without a word. The speaking God, it seems, has become mute. Now, God has a history of responding to those who cry to him in distress, just not this time. Now, to the question, how can the second member of the Trinity be rejected by the first? Keep in mind your Trinitarian lesson that in 
Jesus and the person of Jesus are two natures. And you see the, the suffering on the cross inflicting both differently. And you see this because the sins of all those who would ever believe are imputed to him, credited to his account. So as he's suffering here, what's happening is he is suffering and receiving the consequences of our sins. As he's suffering, the father is placing sins on him, placing the punishment for sins on him, and the scripture says that God is too holy to entertain evil. He does not tolerate evil in his presence. It's not that he's too holy to, you know, to see evil. Obviously, God sees all things. It's that he's too holy to entertain it in front of him, to celebrate it, certainly to hear the cries of those who are being punished for it. And this, by the way, is precisely why there is no salvation in hell. The hell is eternal. Because God does not condescend himself to hell to hear the cries of those who are justly suffering for their sins. There's no second chance at salvation after this life. And it's highlighted here because here you see the infliction and the punishment of hell placed upon a person on this side of the grave. And there is no answer from God. The deafness that Jesus experiences here is the deafness that everybody in hell will experience. Only he's getting it while his flesh is still alive. More than that, he's getting this after having led a sinless life. If you sin in a way that violates your conscience, in a way that you're ashamed of, in a way you can't believe you did, you feel guilty, you feel sick perhaps or nauseous, you feel ashamed at yourself, but then you go on. Jesus is not like you in this sense. He was tempted like you are, but he never sins like you did. And so imagine the most extreme how ill and depressed and distraught you have felt, ashamed you have felt at your sin when you did it. And here is Jesus who is receiving the punishment and those sins imputed to him. He's receiving the shame that goes with them and he never actually did the sins. So his level of abandonment here is even more extreme than anything you can comprehend. Meanwhile, the father, the one who, whom he has clung to his entire life, has turned his face away. At this moment, Jesus becomes the most sinful person who's ever lived. The image of God and the image of Adam together are becoming sin. In a sense, Paul literally describes him as sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. This is so extreme that it's right to even identify him as sin. The father is forsaking him because the son took upon himself our transgressions. That's Isaiah 53, verse 5, and our iniquities. Romans 4, 25 says Jesus was delivered up because of our transgressions. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin. Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us. 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body. 1 Peter 3, he died for sins once for all. 1 John 4, he became the propitiation for our sins. All of that is happening here. It's not that he just bore man's sin, it's that he actually became sin on man's behalf in order that those who believe in him might be rescued from this penalty. What you're rescued for through faith in Christ is what he's enduring right here. 
So this is not simply a Trinitarian rift, as if the big mystery is how the father can turn his face away from his son. Understand, this is a rift in the very fabric of Jesus himself. His humanity is suffering, his deity is forsaking, his blood is spilling while his conscience is recoiling. There's profound loneliness here, profound abandonment, as the son is separated from the father. Notice that before creation, the father and the son have had eternal harmony and joy together. They've had an eternal relationship together, eternal love and oneness in a, in a very real sense of oneness, sharing the same essence, the same being, the same nature. And here that is split. He's abandoned by God in his hour of greatest need for God. Before Luther preached this passage, he said he went into prayer and fasting for 30 days to meditate upon it. <laughs> and he wrote that when he came out, he was more confused than when he began. <laughs> but then when it came time for him to preach a sermon, he had this line, God reveals himself in the hiddenness of the cross. Certainly you learn more about God's character through his absence than you would through his presence here. That he hides himself in some way, by some means, in the secret divine and sovereign and omnipotent plan of God, the God-man was separated from the Father for a period of time at Calvary as the wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son who became sin in our place. He who is God, who had God as his God, was forsaken by his God. That's the anguish and terror of the cross. Verse two, I cry by day, you do not answer. By night I find no rest. This began in the garden the night before, if you recall with him crying out to God with, with eagerness and receiving no answer, then staying up all night through his trial and his early morning mocking and then flogging and then crucifixion, which lasted until the afternoon without rest and without prayer, with no one on whom he can call. If you suffer unjustly, or in your mind what's unjustly, how do you respond? And I say this because people are so quick to paint themselves as the innocent victim. When you start to peel back the layers of the onion, you realize not quite true. They're so quick to paint themselves as the victim of a bad marriage or, you know, you're 49% at fault in a traffic accident and you get the ticket and you act like it's the apocalypse. And you begin to question God or, you know, I don't know if God can be real because this bad thing is happening to me that I don't deserve. And okay, I'll play along. You don't deserve it. You're entirely innocent in this. You did nothing to deserve this. Okay. How do you respond in that situation? Generally by questioning God. Generally by, by wondering what he's doing. How can this be? By doubting your faith. Now, I just want you to keep that in your mind for a second. And see the contrast here by the ultimate example of the one who is innocently suffering. And look at how he responds in verse three. Yet you are holy. His confidence in the majesty of God is unwavering. He doesn't even quiver for a second. He is the innocent victim. 
he is suffering in an unjust way. And yet, he builds his house on the holiness of God. And of course, he knows this to be true. God in human flesh, he declares you're enthroned on the praises of Israel. <coughs> There's a sense in which our praises lift God up. Now God is exalted. He was exalted before the creation of the universe. But there's a sense in which he created the world to magnify his glory. And his praise is magnified as the lips of his people extol his greatness. And in that figurative sense, it lifts him up to the point where the Savior himself says that God must be enthroned on the praises of his people. Now, Jesus here is not suffering from amnesia. He's also acutely aware that God is holy and that God has a reputation, a history of responding to those in need, specifically in verse four. And you are fathers trusted. Remember, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He descends from Abraham. He knows that God heard Abraham in Abraham's moment of trial. He knows that God heard Isaac in Isaac's moment of trial. He knows that God heard Jacob in Jacob's moment of trial. Perhaps Jesus is specifically thinking of David here. When David was exiled from Jerusalem, remember that? David was chased out of Jerusalem. People hurled rocks at him and they spit on him and they spread lies about him. David wasn't innocent in this, of course. He had sinned as well, and yet this was an overreaction. It was not right to run David out of town, and David called on God, and God heard David. And so perhaps this is even going through Jesus' mind, that our forefathers, speaking of David and Isaac, perhaps as Isaac is offered as a sinless sacrifice at that moment. Now, Isaac was an innocent victim in that as Abraham bound him and raised his knife and yet God heard the cry. God knew to intervene and yet that's not happening here. But Jesus is not unaware of what God had done in the past. He declares, our fathers trusted in you and you did answer them, he says in verse four. You did deliver him, verse five. To you they cried and they were rescued. And you they trusted and they were not put to shame. And so on the cross, Jesus has the confidence that God does still answer prayers. The problem is that they're not answering, he's not answering his prayer. And that's where he turns in verse six. In verse six, we turn from the forsaking of God and we move to the forsaken by, by man. But I am a worm and not a man. This becomes the distinction. God heard the prayers of the ancestors. God heard the prayers of the patriarchs. But at this moment, Jesus realizes he's worse than them. He has stretched with all of the sins of all who would ever believe placed on him, he has stretched the image of Adam beyond what it is meant to bear. Is it even right to call him a man in this moment? He still has the nature of, of, of Adam. He has the human nature in him. So yes, technically speaking, he is a man. But the point is that the wrath has been placed on him by God to such an extreme that this is not what the image of Adam was meant to bear. And so he declares, I am a worm and not, not even a man scorned by mankind. In other words, all those who are in the image of Adam mock him. In fact, they despise him, it says, because they recognize in this key area he's not like them. Their consciences are convicted by him. He is the sinless sufferer, and he's suffering in holiness, and this offends them. The more sinless Jesus is, the more offensive he becomes, and so they mock him. They despise him. All who see me mock me, verse seven says. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They begin uh, sarcastically taunting him with insults, lipping phrases to him. 
Now, what, are they, what phrases are they lipping? Well, we, we learn this from Matthew 27, verse 39, which quotes this passage. Those who passed by when Jesus was on the cross defamed him, shaking their heads, that same phrase. And they were mouthing, you who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And, and the Hebrews use that word mouthing. And when you think of that in English, you think, you know, no vocal sounds behind it. In Hebrew, it's the concept of a puppet. Like they're quoting him, in other words, sarcastically, sarcastically. You know, your, your child might say, I'm not hungry tonight, I don't want dinner. And so you put it away. A couple hours later, oh, I'm starving. And you might repeat to them, you just said you don't want dinner. You're mouthing at them. That's this phrase. Now, what are the people mouthing at Jesus here? They're mouthing something he had said three years earlier. Three years earlier, he said, tear the temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. And John lets you know he was speaking about his body, not the actual temple. But the crowd didn't understand that. They thought he was speaking about the temple. So ironically now, as his body is being torn down, as he is being killed and crucified, they are repeating that phrase to him. Oh, you said you could rebuild the temple. Ha, ha. If you are God's son, they're mouthing that to him. You said you're God's son. If you are God's son, get yourself down. In the same way, Matthew 27, the chief priests, together with the experts in the law and the elders, they were mocking him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. If he comes down to the cross, we might actually believe that. That's what they're saying to him. Back in Psalm 22, read it again. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Saying he trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Free delights in him. See the irony here. The very thing that is sustaining Christ on the cross is what they're mocking him for. The fact that he will not let his trust waver. The fact that verse three through five says he's trusting in the Lord's holiness and the Lord's capacity to deliver. That's what people are mocking him for. Oh, he trusts the Lord. No need to worry about him. And in verse 9, he goes back to what he knows to be true. And I hope you see this oscillation here. He goes through his anguish, but it's rooted in what he knows to be true. He goes through his suffering. He goes back to what he knows to be true. What does he know to be true? Verse 9, you are he who took me from the womb. That God placed Jesus in the womb, in Mary's womb, through the, the agency of the Holy Spirit, and that God has never abandoned him from that point forward. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you, I was cast from my birth. In a very unique way, Jesus was given to God from his birth. The only human ever with these two natures. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. That has been Jesus' lifelong experience. Not only has God always answered the prayers of, of the patriarchs that Jesus knows, but also God has always answered his own prayers until this point. And so he's going back to what he knows to be true. Therefore, be not far from me, verse 11, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. A portrait of lifelong security, of trust and dependence on God as Father. It's that trust that's mocked now, but it's not a trust that he easily abandons. There is no one to help is the problem at the end of verse 11, and that transitions to his forsaking by his friends here in verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Uh, Jesus' his whole life has been surrounded by his, his family and then these last three years by his disciples, the apostles, where he went, they went also. Even when he went in isolation, there were often two or three of them tagging along. 
But now they're nowhere to be seen. Now instead, they're swapped out for these strong bulls. Picture, you know, the Spanish Toro kind of bulls with the horns. These are not your friendly, you know, these are not dairy cows we're talking about here. These are dangerous, dangerous animals. Strong bulls of Bashan. This is the grassy plains on the other side of the Jordan, known for their, their strong and swift bulls. Uh, to Englishize it, it'd be like saying, I'm not talking about, you know, Virginia steer here. I'm talking about Texas cows. <laughs> That's who's surrounding him. Big ones, powerful ones, full of life, full of vitality, while his life ebbs away. That's the contrast. His life is leaving him while strong bulls are surrounding him. They open wide, verse 13, their mouths at me like a, like a lion. Now he's giving lion imagery to the bulls. And again, they're not actual bulls surrounding him. There's not actual lions surrounding him. It's the crowd that is mocking him and hurling insults at him. They're circling him. You might say in our language, they're circling him like sharks. The Israelites were land-loving people, so he uses the imagery of a, of a bull, a lion marauding and ready to pounce on its prey. That turns to his psychological and physical distress in verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. His bones have been displaced. They're not broken, of course, but they're displaced. He's unable to free himself. He was bound throughout the day and now he's crucified. His heart is like wax. It is melted within his breast. Speaking of the inner turmoil here. The weight of the psalmist's focus in this, by the way, is on his physical suffering. If you notice, most of the stanzas and, or most of the verses in the psalm are, are two lines until you get to verse 14 where it's twice the length of the other ones. Verse 15, three lines there. It's putting the focus on the physical turmoil and the physical affliction of the Savior. And it's not that the physical affliction of the Savior is what makes this stand out, of course. But it's drawing your attention to the horrific way in which he would be murdered. If you read this, you see the physical suffering, and of course it intersects with the psychological anguish he's going through. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. I lay, uh, my tongue sticks to my jaws. He began his ministry with fasting. He will end it with dehydration. The Gospels let you know that he takes vinegar at this point to wet his mouth so that he can yell, a scene that you're also gonna see here. Notice that he's, he's attributing this to the Lord. You lay me in the dust of death. He knows this is the work of God. This is not the, an, ac, an accusatory tone here. Not like Job who's like, you did this to me. This, he, he knows what's happening here. He knows that God is indeed doing this to him. In keeping with his human nature, that from dirt Adam was made to dirt he will return. The Savior knows that is true of his flesh as well. Many dogs encompass me, he says. A company of evil doers encircles me. You know, we talking about dogs here. We don't get that. Our dogs are different than Bible dogs. Our dogs wear sweaters and go in airplanes and to concerts. <laughs> these dogs are four-footed vultures. These dogs eat Jezebel. That's who these dogs are. 
you run from these dogs. They run in packs on the streets and you don't just walk on the other side of the street. You go in a house or you run away from them while they're encircling him. And I don't, again, I don't think it's literal dogs encircling him, although it may very well be. He's speaking of his enemies. And he can't run away, which is what a person would do if they were surrounded by dogs. They would run or, or climb or hide, but they have pierced my hands and my feet, he says in verse 16. Again, written a thousand years before the advent of crucifixion, and it's described in perfect detail here. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. Notice that this is happening in the most debasing way possible. His physical suffering has abandoned my God and it's not happening in a corner. This is not in a closet or a jail cell or on death row here. This is out in public. Everybody is watching him. Why do we say that Jesus was, was naked on the cross? You get that from verse 18. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. A typical Jewish man would have sandals, a belt, a headdress, an outer cloak, and an inner tunic. And they've already divided all of that. The scripture says back in John 19, what's left is his, his undergarment. The outer coat could be, could be sold or divided up. Sandals could be pawned. What are you going to do with the undergarment? I mean, you can't cut it up because that fabric's not going to be good for anything else. It's not even worth arguing about. And so instead, they play a game for it. John 19, verse 24, they said, we don't want to cut it. So let's cast lots for it. And then John says, this was to fulfill Psalm 22. They divided his garments. They cast lots for his undergarments. debased in public, the wrath of God absorbed by God's perfect son. But you, O Lord, verse 19, Yahweh, do not be far off. Oh, you're my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. These dogs are so ferocious, just an idiom for death. Now understand these details, these prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ, they're perfectly fulfilled in him. Now why is that? Obviously to establish that the Bible is true. I mean, that goes without saying. But there's a second reason for this. I want you to understand that Jesus' suffering was not just the physical element, was not just the, the clothes were stripped off of him and his bones were out of place and he was mocked and the, his hands and feet were nailed and he was lifted up while he was dehydrated. That's not entirely the point. Crucifixion was not uncommon, of course. I mean, two other people were crucified that same day right next to him and Romans crucified uncountable number of people. What makes this difference is that he was dying in your place. He had your sins imputed to him. So how do you know that Jesus actually died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures because of the nature of his physical death also is in accordance with the scriptures? This is in the category of what's easier to tell the, the man, pick up your mat and walk or your sins are forgiven. I mean, which is easier to say. Well, they, they both require the same amount of effort to say, but you know that Jesus can forgive sins if he can have the man walk. Well, here, what's easier to do, to prophesy the physical suffering of his death or to say his death will forgive sinners? Well, they're both, in a sense, easy to do, but you can believe one if the other happens. And so the exact fulfillment of prophecy here gives you encouragement that your sins are forgiven. 
And of course, he takes the vinegar to wet his mouth so that he can cry out. And that's how this ends. Verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. Uh, in Hebrew, the phrase, you answer me, comes at the very end of the verse. So if I were to render this verse, I would say, save me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. You will answer me. And that becomes his final cry from the cross here, that he will be heard. He will be heard. John says he took vinegar so that he could give his final cry out. And that's what's prefigured here. Understand that despite all of this, the story does not end with him as a victim. He's a victor, not a victim. He's in control of this. Even now, this is not a plan gone horribly wrong. The devil might be smiling right now and the Pharisees might be high-fiving right now and you might be questioning right now if God's plan was this, or did it go wrong? The disciples most certainly were. But Jesus was not. This was all according to the triune will of God. Psalm 22 was not written so that you'd feel sorry for him. It was written to show the fulfillment of God's plan. That Jesus will not die in anonymity, but he will die not with a shout of anguish. He will die before God. Even though the Father turned his face away, the Father will receive him. He will die not with his final cry being of despair, but of victory and triumph. God will answer me, he declares. This displays his perfect obedience to the end. He ends his life with a shout. But that gets ahead of ourselves. We will save that for next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, it's staggering to think that there are those who do not believe the gospel despite this psalm being in front of them. The conscience of every person who reads this and hears this bears witness to the truth of your word. Written by David, 800 years before the Savior, describes him perfectly with prophecies too intricate to fabricate, impossible to manipulate, and fulfilled exactly. Lord, we draw from this confidence that you are near to the brokenhearted, that because you abandoned your son, you will not abandon us. We have access to you through him, and he has atoned for our sins. We give you thanks that you came as our Savior and we receive you even this day. It's in your name we pray, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.